Hey everyone, welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. I'm your host, Chris Case. In June, Trevor went to Moab for what he thought would be a nice vacation filled with mountain biking with friends. It turned into a stressful, harrowing experience when one friend was evacuated to the hospital by helicopter and Trevor was left wondering if he'd live. No, it wasn't from a crash. It was all about the heat that day. Trevor's friend had suffered heat stroke. Or was it heat stress? Ultimately, the trip made Trevor wonder what he could have done differently. Thus, we reached out to experts to help us better understand heat stress, heat stroke, heat exhaustion, and similar conditions elicited by heat. What are the causes? What are the physiological ramifications? What can you look for in yourself or others to know if serious issues are on the horizon? And finally, what can you do to prevent those early symptoms from turning into a catastrophe? We're joined today by Adam Weissman, Trevor's friend who lived through this ordeal in the heat of Moab. We're also joined by Emil Abraham, a past pro and Pan Am Games medalist turned elite coach. And we're joined by Dr. William Adams, the Associate Director of Sports Medicine Research at the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, whose work focuses on investigating the prevention, management, and care of heat-related illness, among other things. In all of sports, nutrition is one of the most confusing and controversial topics. That's because everyone has an opinion, and it's hard to tell fact from fad. Plus, what works for one person may not work for you. Now Fast Talk Laboratories is shedding some light on the science of sports nutrition. In our new sports nutrition pathway, we take a deep dive into the science and practice of sports nutrition to help you find what works for you. This pathway features experts like Dr. Asker Yukendrup, Dr. Brian Carson, Dr. Tim Noakes, Dr. John Hawley, Julie Young, and Ryan Kohler. They create a science-based framework that will show you how to think about sports nutrition in a new way. Our sports nutrition pathway is the only guide you need to this complex topic. See more at fasttalklabs.com pathways. Welcome, Dr. William Adams, to Fast Talk today. It's great to have you on the show. Yeah, thank you very much for uh, having me. I'm, I'm looking forward to the discussion today. Excellent. This is one of those episodes that was prompted by an experience that, that Trevor had, and he's going to talk about that momentarily, but it just got us both thinking about the fact that we knew kind of not that much about this subject. Um, perhaps it's actually going to come up more often as temperatures rise around the world. It's just one of those things that if you haven't experienced it, you probably haven't thought too much about it. If you experience it or if somebody you're, you're uh, riding with or running with or exercising with uh, falls victim to this, then it's going to be a pretty scary experience potentially. And so we want to explore heat stress, heat stroke, explain those terms, um, explain what to do if you find your situation, find yourself in that situation, um, and and plenty more today with Dr. Adams, uh, Trevor. I think you do want to start off by sharing a bit of a, a cautionary tale, a, a, which uh, prompted this episode in general. Right. So this was something that happened in June. That I can tell you, I thought I'd be prepared for this sort of incident because I studied all this in grad school, and we learned all about heat stroke and heat illness and what to do. And uh, as you'll hear in this story, 
I was not nearly as prepared as I thought I was. And the, 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 at one point, basically, I had a friend that, that kind of fell apart on the trail, and, and there was a certain point where we thought he was dying, and there just wasn't much we could do. This is in Moab, correct? Right. So it was a, a trip that I did to Moab in early June with some uh, some college buddies. We all met up there, and a heat wave hit, and Moab normally is pretty hot. Uh, the other thing about Moab, not a lot of protection. There's no trees. You're riding on rocks, and the, the rocks can kind of bake you from below while the sun's baking you from above. And it was insanely hot out. And we were there three days, and, and the first couple days, certainly we were all feeling the heat. My my friend Adam, uh, he's like me. He's got a self-deprecating sense of humor, so he was making fun of himself and his inability to handle the heat. And when we got to the third day, and uh, we we started with a, basically we we're going up a big climb, and then we'd descend back down, and we we're planning about an hour and a half of riding. He was complaining a bit again, and and this time it was legitimate. Unfortunately, neither I nor a friend that was riding with us, and I'm kind of embarrassed by this, really paid attention to it. As a matter of fact, when when Adam started complaining and was stopping a few times to to rest, we were, we were more making fun of them than, than going, maybe we should get them off the mountain. And so I have to own that. Uh, but uh, what you'll hear in this story is how quickly it went from, oh, just a little bit of complaining to something that was quite uh, extraordinary and, and scary. So basically, um, we had finished the climbing and now they're both much better mountain bikers than me, and I was starting to kill Adam and should have noticed that as well. You know, I was sitting there going, oh, I'm starting to pick up on this whole mountain biking thing. Instead of going, no, I'm really not. Something's not right with Adam. I shouldn't be beating him, especially on the descents. Uh, so also kind of ignored that cue. But it was basically as we were descending back down, uh, there was a certain point where you could go left and go straight down to the cars or you could go right and it was a little bit longer and much more technical. So not being the good mountain, a very good mountain biker, I went, I'm, I'm going left. I'm taking the easier route down. And Adam said he was going to go with me and we could tell he was looking a little fatigued but still hadn't really noticed anything. So our other friend, Nate, he, he went the hard way and Adam and I went left, we biked, you just go a, a couple hundred feet, and then you hit a T-intersection where you either turn right and go down, or turn left and go back up the mountain. And Adam started to go left, and I'm like, Adam, no, we got to go down to the cars. He's like, this way. I'm like, no, Adam, that's back up the mountain. And he just kept going, no, this way. And I was explaining to him and realizing he's not processing what I'm saying at all. And, you know, he, he's something's not right when he's not figuring out that cars are down, we should be going downhill. So I knew something wasn't right. We turned around, and I just started looking for a good tree that we could go and sit under and, and rehydrate and then hopefully get him down to the cars. So didn't go much further. He was still able to ride his bike. He was still, was still able to go over some of the more technical stuff. I found the tree. I pulled over. He went right by me, and I yelled at him, and it took him a second to process. So I got him to come back, get under the tree. And that was the point I could tell something's not right here. But I still thought, 
just recover for a minute, uh, cool down, and we'll be okay. So got him to start drinking from his water. I took my camel back and basically dumped the whole thing over his head uh, to cool him down. I thought, let's give him 15 minutes and, and we'll get out of here. But instead, he progressively got worse. And I, I realized I'm not going to be able to get him on the bike. Also discovered that I didn't have cell phone reception, so I was basically stuck with what we had and trying to get him down. So my thought was, let's get him up, let's start walking down and uh, see where he's at and maybe then try to get him back on his bike and and ride down to the car. Uh, Got him up, he started walking, and I realized I had to hold him up. He, He couldn't walk, he couldn't keep his balance on his own. Uh, and that was the moment where I went, oh man, we're pretty much out of water. I have no cell phone reception. It's two miles to the cars and I'm struggling just to get him to walk a hundred feet and started to get pretty scared going, what do I do now? It's easy to point out the signs, but just as easy to miss them. Let's hear from my friend Adam and some of the things we all missed in the days leading up to his bout of heat illness. Yeah, I'd say there were uh, some indicators both the, the two days prior to, uh, to the incident. Day one, I think this was before you arrived. Uh, I arrived there and met up with the buddy Nate. And we went for, I think, a two-hour ride in the afternoon. It was around 100 degrees out there. And I'd say this ride was probably harder than the ride we did on day three. It was climbing for the first hour 15, hour 20, and then descending back down. And near the top of the climb, I was feeling a little off. I was feeling slightly dizzy, definitely overheated. And the thing I did notice the most was on the way up, I was able to maintain, you know, steady state sort of climbing, no problem. But after about the first five minutes, if I tried to punch it up a steep section or over a ledge or something, I just couldn't go. I couldn't, you know, put out extra power. So I think those are the two things, just not being able to actually accelerate and then near the top feeling slightly dizzy. But after descending, um, you know, we got back to the car and I was feeling relatively normal, you know, cooled off a bit on the descent, slowed down, drank a little more water. So day two was our, our longest ride. And this was one where we had a lot of logistical problems. Uh, I broke my, my rear hub, fortunately, at the top where we were near the, near the car and then swapped bikes with you. And then I felt pretty good most of the descent. It was really near the bottom of the ride where we were dropping into the canyon. You kind of get cut off from the breeze there, and it gets hotter and hotter the farther you go down. And I'd say the last mile of that ride, I was starting to feel a little dizzy again. We stopped at the bottom by the river. I cooled off a bit, and then we rode back to town. But after that, I definitely noticed my my bike shorts, my jersey, my gloves were you know caked in salt. Um, so I definitely lost a lot of electrolytes day two. I think I think those two things should have probably told me that well, maybe day three was a bad idea. You know, just feeling a little off in the heat the first day, and then just losing a lot of electrolytes and everything the day two. Definitely primed me for to be in a bad spot on the third day. We kept trying to walk, had to kind of stop periodically. And thankfully, and I think this honestly saved him, some mountain bikers coming up the trail ran into us. 
they saw how bad this was. So they helped me get him underneath this smaller bush that it provided some shade. And by that point, he, he just we, we were carrying him. He couldn't walk. Uh, so got him under the bush. They started feeding him some water and, and pouring some water over his head. Uh, one of them had different service for me and was able to get reception. It wasn't great. We actually had to walk a good distance to get it. Uh, and we had to call in a helicopter and then walk back to see how Adam was doing. And it just progressively got worse. He, he started going into rigor. So he was, he, he looked all tense. And so I, I kind of grabbed his arm and said, Adam, relax. And his arm was kind of held up above his side at kind of a, a bent angle and discovered he, he couldn't. It was just locked, and he couldn't get his arm to, to release. And he pretty much lost all muscle function at that point. So we were doing everything to, to keep him going, but he knew it was bad, uh, and he was starting to get worried that he was going to die there on the mountain. I admit to you, I had my moments of thinking the same thing, even though I was telling him, no, you're going to be fine, we're going to get you out of here. It got really scary, and thankfully... The helicopter came in. We flagged it down. They came over. They had me start to spray water over him while they gave him IVs. At that point, he got severe cramping, like just absolutely screaming in pain, cramping all over his body. They got two IV bags in him there on the mountain, and then we were able to get him onto a stretcher, and they they flew him out and took him to the hospital where he got several more IV bags. So it was a really scary experience. And I thought I would have been prepared for this and was woefully you know, underprepared. And like I said, I had a moment where I had my friend on my shoulder thinking, I'm, I'm watching my friend die. And that's what has motivated us to say, as you said, Chris, you know, the, these heat waves are getting longer and more frequent. We should do an episode about this because I'm sure many of our listeners are going to encounter this, either have that horrible experience themselves or, like me, be riding with a friend who, who this happens to them. You're hearing the story from my perspective, but let's hear how my friend Adam experienced this day. Yeah, this was a weird one for me. Um, I've definitely done plenty of rides where I've overheated and run out of water but they were nothing like this in the past. It was sort of a, um, you know, you get a dry mouth, you get maybe a little bit of a headache, maybe your reaction time gets a little worse, but it's sort of a gradual thing towards the end of a ride. So I thought I was pretty good about predicting, you know, how much range I would have left, you know, how, how quickly I needed to finish the ride versus if I could recover on the descent. Um, and this ride definitely showed me that in this case, I definitely had no ability to actually predict how I'd respond. Um, this was past anything I'd experienced before. I think I knew I was in a little bit of trouble when we were pretty close to the top of the climb. I had been starting to slow down and stopped in the shade uh, fairly regularly for the last, you know, maybe the last 20% of the climb. And I almost never do that. Um, usually I, I just keep going to the top and then take in the view and then, you know, recover on the way down. Uh, and I knew once we got to that trail junction that I needed to head down as quickly as possible. 
on the West Technical Trail, but I was a little, uh, at that point I was getting fairly disoriented. Um, I think I completely screwed up which direction I should go at that trail junction. And you guys had to uh, point me the correct way down the trail. And then quickly after that, I went from being confused to being shaky on the bike to knowing I had to get off the bike and walk, thankfully, because I didn't want to end up with a concussion. And then as soon as I got off the bike, like it was very soon after that, I was having trouble walking. And I think that's probably close to the time you doubled back and came across me at that point. Uh, I was super confused. And um, I think I remember you trying to get, you know, get me to drink, make some more Gatorade. Uh, and I was like fumbling around on it, unable to open up my Camelback effectively to get out, you know, Gatorade powder to refill my bottle. And after that, it, uh, yeah, I think I was basically out of it at that point. There was actually, so there's a whole part that you don't remember. Uh, and our, we, we talked about this at the time and, and you couldn't remember at all. I started to get the sense that, that something was, was wrong with you. Uh, it was that trail junction where we, we had to go left or right and you wanted to go back up the mountain. And I kept saying, no, Adam, we got to go down. And I could just see uh, your brain just wasn't processing it. So I started looking for a, a place where we could get you in the shade and, and pulled you over. And I actually dumped my camel back over your head. So we had you sitting underneath this tree, had to drink some of your water. And then that's when you said, okay, I'm gonna try to walk a bit. And you were really stumbling. So with that, Dr. Adams, since I proved I don't, I'm not an expert on this at all, throw it to you. And I just want to ask the question, hearing that story, what could we have done differently? There's a, a number of things. I think, I think some of the things that were, were out of the control were obviously the, the, the heat wave um, that uh, had, had occurred during that trip, um, you know, with that increase in, in the environmental heat that adds some extra stress and load on the body, um, particularly if, if um, someone isn't uh, used to um, exercising in, in those um, environments and, and knowing that Moab is, is typically hot in and of itself, um, you know, I think that the added heat, is, it becomes more problematic. Some other things that I always recommend to just anyone um, looking to do exercise uh, in, in hot conditions, particularly prolonged exercise and, and maybe in a a newer environment where they may not be used to is to make sure that they are are really um, taking advantage of some other effective strategies such as hydration and, and making sure that people are staying adequately hydrated during activity, particularly if that activity is going across uh, multiple days. And I think that's sometimes where we start to see some, some issues where after repeated days, particularly in hot environments, um, people may not be um, adequately uh, replacing enough fluids, whether it be during activity or, or after activity before the next bout of activity. And, you know, progressively over the course of days, people become more, more dehydrated, which can then lead to some, some issues. It, it could exacerbate some of that heat stress that's imposed in the body, which, you know, may increase body temperature. It could lead to some other issues, um, you know, cramping and, 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 and whatnot. Those are some easy strategies that, that can be done. Other, other things that I always recommend to individuals as well, particularly if they know or they have planned travel to areas of 
that are that are hotter to make sure that they kind of uh, gradually, uh, you know, phase in that amount of exercise or the amount of exercise in in, in hot environments to you know um, slowly adapt those those conditions. Those are those are effective and allows the body to adapt and 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 have those proper adaptations that we could probably talk about a little bit later on in this call. Um, if I had to guess, with some of the the topics um, related to heatiness. Um, so you know, those are some some you know effective effective strategies that, that can be done that uh, can be helpful. Obviously, with the the environment and being in Moab and and the how uh, sparse you know tree cover is there, um, you know, it's harder to do activity in shade or seek shade. So, you know, having, being out in the sun um, adds some further load um, onto the body or heat load onto the body um, from, from the radi- radiation from the sun. So it makes it difficult to try to get out of that, uh, that heat load. Um, so luckily there was some, you know, some, some shade cover with the bushes you were describing, but, you know, just real briefly and generally, those are some things that come to mind right away that, that, uh, you know, could have been done or could have been um, focused on and, and everything. We heard from Dr. Adams on what he felt we could have done differently. Let's go back to my friend Adam and hear his thoughts about what we could have done. I could be completely off about the timeline, but I think the whole timeline for this from like just before the trail junction to me stumbling was maybe five, 10 minutes tops. So it was, it was very rapid from the point where I was still able to ride the bike. Maybe, maybe I didn't know which way to go on the trail, but I could still handle the bike. I could still react to, I couldn't even stand up. So it was not something that I could like just limp back to the trailhead and cool off. It was, uh, oh crap, there's only one way out of it. And I'm not, I'm not going out into my own power at this point. <laughs> Anything else to share about the day of from your experience? I think from the, so I was trying in the beginning of the climb to, you know, ride, ride within what I thought was my limits. Um, and I think had, had the temperature been much lower, like, you know, say 70 degrees Fahrenheit versus it was probably upper eighties when we started the ride and then rapidly up nineties to hundred as we got higher. I think if the temperature had been lower, I would have been fine. I'm speculating here, but I, I feel like a lot of the issues were just like, I could not shed heat fast enough. Um, I'd been out on the trail for, I think, an hour with both you and some of those guys who, who stopped to help out, actively trying to cool me off, you know, pouring water on me, fanning me. Um, and then the helicopter took me to the, the hospital where they finally got a temperature reading and my core temperature was about 100.2 degrees Fahrenheit at that point. So it was easily a couple few degrees higher out in the field. Yeah, we had um, already cooled you down pretty significantly by that point. Yeah, so I wouldn't be surprised if, I, I don't know, easily could have been up 102, 103 degrees Fahrenheit out in the field. And I feel like, I feel like if I'd been able to keep my core temperature down, none of this would have happened. Perhaps, you know, electrolyte loss. If, if, I, if we'd had two, day, two hot days beforehand, electrolyte loss could have done this. But even, even with electrolyte loss the days before, on a, if it had been a cooler ride the third day, I would have been able to, you know, ride my own pace, keep my core temperature reasonable, not go through so much, so many fluids on the ride up and make it down just fine. 
So the thing that surprised me the most about it was how rapidly it happened and how you know, I didn't keep up. Um, I was still thinking about us biking out of there when he wasn't able to walk. I was still thinking about walking him out when he was losing all muscle function. It just he went from a guy who was complaining a little bit but able to ride to having to lie on the ground and completely unable to move in 10, 15 minutes. Uh, it, it was shocking how quickly that happened. I don't know if that's typical and if there's early warning signs so that you know, I could have kept up a little better, realized how bad it was before it got that bad. Yeah, and that's a great point. And, and from my experience in dealing with patients that have succumbed, succumbed to, to heat stroke or heat exhaustion, it, it is surprising to see how quickly someone deteriorates in, in, in those environments. Um, and it's different for everyone. The deterioration could present differently depending on the person and, and everything. And I think that's the uniqueness of, of heat-related illnesses, how they are rather individualized as far as how um, those signs and symptoms uh, present themselves. Um, and how quickly uh, they deteriorate or, or the changes, um, you know, within the body um, that occur. And, and uh, for some, it, it's very, very rapid. And, and for some, you know, it's a little bit more progressive. But, um, you know, it, it really depends on the person. I think some of the, the, the telltale signs just in general, you know, um, and based on some of the points you're bringing up in, in, in your story is this is an individual who typically is a, you know, very good, you know, mountain biker. And I think some of the early warning signs that, that could have been observed was, oh, well, hey, it looks like he's struggling. I got, you know, it looks like, right. you know, I, I'm, I'm kicking his butt, if you will. Those types of indications where things just appear not to be normal for that one individual should be something that uh, people um, should be aware of and, and pick up on to start asking some questions and, and to start paying uh, attention. You know, I think that's probably the best advice that I could give just because of how, like I said, how individualized um, those presentations are with individuals. Um, and, and most of the time, you know, for with someone in, in this case, you know, with some, with some friends, you know, we, we know who our, you know, how our friends are, we know their personalities and, and everything. So even some subtle um, changes retrospectively become apparent, like, oh, yeah, that wasn't right. So I think those are some things that can be done proactively, knowing, like, hey, this, this isn't right, or that was, that was odd, or, you know, what they're saying is odd of them to say or, or, or whatnot could be helpful. Yeah, I think that's the one thing that I really look back on and say, I, I completely missed that. Instead of, Enjoying the fact that for the first time in my life I was beating him on a mountain bike, I should have gone, okay, he, he's not riding anywhere close to his normal. He's stopping and sitting in the shade periodically. He's probably struggling. There's probably an issue here. And you know, like I said, looking back, that's that's the one big cue that I think I really missed that could have prevented all this. So want to jump a little into the, the physiology and, and what all of these things are. And I'm saying that very vaguely because we'll, we'll share two things. One is doing some research for this episode. I saw a lot of different terms, heat illness, heat stress, heat stroke, heat exhaustion, heat syncope for passing out. So I didn't see a ton of consistency. It's something that really struck me is after they flew him out, they had also sent a ground crew uh, to potentially drive him out of there. And so I was talking with the lead rescue operator, explaining to him what had happened because he wanted the, the story and said, you know, my, my friend was suffering from heat stroke. And the guy goes, 
he didn't have heat stroke. I go, he's pretty rough shape. And the guy goes, my experience is most people who get heat stroke don't survive. And it was kind of shocking to hear him say that. Uh, that certainly wasn't what I learned in school, but I'm not the person that's on the trail every day trying to rescue people. So interested in what is the terminology you use and what is the differences between these different things? Yeah, no, that, that's a great question. And, and um, there's a lot of terminology um, that's used. And sometimes it, it, it can get a little confusing, definitely, to understand what's, what's uh, uh, being referred to in certain situations. So if we kind of look at the terminology, we can kind of break it down a little bit. And hopefully I can explain things and you know, can provide some clarity to those tuning in. So you know, we have heat illness or exertional heat illness. That term is really describing a constellation of, of other medical conditions. Uh, is, a, is an umbrella term that's really describing a series of other medical conditions um, that kind of lump within that uh, grouping there, if that makes sense. And if we're thinking in the exertional realm, and when I say exertional realm, this is in situations where people are um, doing physical activity or they're, they're exercising, you know, they're, they're producing metabolic heat through you know, movement of their muscles. You know, you really have four primary conditions that we deal with in a sports medicine realm. We have heat syncope, which I'll explain here in a second. We have heat exhaustion. We have exertional heat stroke, um, which is different than classic heat stroke, which I'll explain here um, as well and what those differences are. And then we have exercise-associated muscle cramps. And at one time, that term used to be called heat cramps, but that term is no longer used, at least in the uh, contemporary literature, because um, evidence has shown that the environmental heat does not, in fact, cause the cramping. Now, the environmental heat may be responsible for certain things physiologically that may cause cramping, but the heat itself does not cause um, cramping. So they uh, have returned that condition to be exercise associated muscle cramps. So if we look back at those four kind of primary conditions, and let's start with, you know, heat syncope. And if you look at the word syncope, it's describing a, a fainting episode. And, that, and that's really what it is. It's a, it's a fainting episode. And what happens, um, especially when you're being exposed to environmental heat, whether it be, you know, exercising or if you're exposed to that heat stress for a long period of time, um, particularly if you're stationary, think of like a, a soldier, for example, who's out in out in the heat and you know, they have to be at attention or, you know, they're not really moving. What happens is, you know, blood pools in, in your lower extremities, it pools in your legs because gravity works within the body. And what can happen is if you're out exercising in the heat and you suddenly stop, or if you're standing statically for a long period of time, you can have this pooling of the blood in, in the lower extremities, which diverts away from the, the heart and, and the brain, and, and you have that fainting episode. The heat exacerbates that a little bit just because if you're exercising and say you're out doing a, a marathon, for example, you finish and you suddenly stop, well, the blood's all in your legs is, you know, still because you're just exercising. But in, in those situations, especially when it's hot outside, you're most likely dehydrated. And if you're dehydrated, um, you have a lower um, amount of blood volume in, in, in your body. So if you, have low, if you have a lower blood volume, 
you have a lower volume of blood that can go back to the heart and the brain, and if most of that's being pulled in lower extremities, you kind of create this situation where you have a, a fainting episode. That condition is relatively um, benign. Um, you know, you have a fainting episode from a treatment perspective, you know, getting someone laying down, you know, raise their legs up 12 inches off the ground and promote that blood flow back to the, the core and the heart. Um, and typically they'll recover very quickly. Thing and, and from a management perspective after that, it's really more of, okay, hey, let's, let's replace some fluids and, and, and whatnot. Exercise associated muscle cramps or, you know, previously termed heat cramps um, is, is just that. It's, it's a muscle cramp. And, you know, I think most of us who are recreationally active or former athletes, uh, I'm sure at some point in our uh, careers, we've had a situation where we've had uh, a muscle cramp and it's a, a tight tonic contraction. You can see that muscle contracting, very, very painful. Um, and that's what it is. Um, and there's, there's a few kind of theories of thought as far as what causes that. And hopefully after this explanation, you can kind of see how the heat may be potentially involved. Um, but the, the two theories are really, um, you know, volume depletion. So dehydration, electrolyte losses, um, and that triggers a series of uh, physiological reactions that cause that cramp. Um, there's another kind of frame of thought where it's more centrally mediated and centrally mediated meaning coming from the, the brain and, and the higher order systems within our body. And with fatigue over time, particularly during prolonged or, you know, extreme exercise that is fatiguing on the muscles. So those are kind of like the, the, the current kind of theories surrounding what causes um, this. Um, and if you look at some of the literature, some of the more recent literature, you know, it, it may be more of a combination of both of those factors that may be involved. You may be, you may have some, you know, central um, and peripheral fatigue of those working muscles that's combined with, say, volume depletion from dehydration. And that sets off a series of responses that causes that, that, um, that muscle cramp to occur. Now, from the, the heat perspective of why it used to be called heat cramps, um, you know, again, if we're out exercising in a hot environment, we're going to have a higher sweat rate to help with body water, uh, body temperature regulation. And as we lose more, more body water, our body has to adapt. So we, we um, undergo a series of adaptations to help maintain central pressure. And if we lose a lot of body water, we may be more predisposed to, to cramping. So if we're exercising in a hot environment, we have an increased sweat rate, we're going to lose more body water, which may predispose someone to, to cramping um, you know, therein. So that's how, that's how heat kind of factors into that, um, that condition of itself. Um, from a management perspective, um, that condition is, is still relatively benign. You're going to have a muscle cramp and, and, you know, the best way to, to treat that is to put that muscle um, under a, a passive stretch. Um, and then to really address maybe some factors responsible for causing those cramps, if it may be more related to hydration, making sure that people are replacing those fluid losses, maybe adding in some electrolytes as well to help offset some of those losses that occur in sweat um, and everything. Um, but you know the, that's a, a, a good way to manage that condition and, and then to be proactive moving forward to make sure that people are prepared um, going forward with other um, exercise or physical activity events in, in hot environments. Our last two conditions are, you know, heat exhaustion and, and exertional heat stroke, and those are a little bit more severe. So heat exhaustion, um, 
by definition, if you look at the technical definition of heat exhaustion is one's inability to continue exercising in the heat due to cardiovascular insufficiency. So basically what that means is after, you know, during, during exercise in a hot environment, particularly prolonged exercise, endurance exercise, our bodies are in constant competition um, for demands. And in this case, looking at um, cardiovascular demands. So as we're exercising, we need blood flow going to our working muscles. So if I'm not running a marathon, I need a lot of blood flow going to my legs to make sure that I'm providing oxygen and nutrients to my, my, my muscles and my legs to keep myself running. Well, at the same time, if I'm exercising, I'm producing body heat. And as we're exercising, our bodies need energy. And unfortunately, our bodies are pretty inefficient at using the energy we have stored in our body, where we only utilize 10, 15, maybe 20% of the energy that we have. Um, and that, that percentage, you know, depends on, you know, what literature you're reading. Um, but a very small amount of the energy that we have in our bodies is used to actually do mechanical work. Well, the rest of the energy that we break down is actually given off in the form of heat. So we increase our body temperature because we're having heat that's being produced by us breaking down energy during exercise. Well, to get rid of that body heat, we, we have a few mechanisms. We have conduction, we have convection, and con conduction meaning um, a transfer of heat uh, between um, the direct content of two solid masses. So if I put my hand on like my desk right now, for example, my desk feels a little bit cooler because the room temperature is about 70 degrees where my office is, but my, my body temperature is higher than that. So by touching the desk, I'm transferring heat from my body to the desk. And if I remove my hand after a minute or two and put it back there, I can see that, hey, that part of that desk is warmer than the rest. So that, that's a good example of what conduction is. Convection, meaning the movement of air or fluid. And that the heat transfer that, that occurs through the movement of air or, or fluid. So think of you know, going into a swimming pool, for example, and we have a, a circulating body of water. Well, we're going to lose a lot of body heat because that water is drawing heat away from our bodies. So that occurs with, with body uh, temperature regulation, with the um, transfer of blood to our skin to be removed from the air going over our skin surface. We have evaporation of sweat from our skin surface, which is our, our most effective way to, to lose body heat, particularly when it's, when it's um, hot outside. And we have radiation, which is the load from the sun. I mean, that really, you know, depends on the environmental temperatures in and of itself. So we have all these mechanisms. So going back to heat exhaustion, so our, our muscles are requiring blood flow to do mechanical work, but we also need to get rid of the body heat that we're producing. So that blood flow goes to the skin and then by means of convection, um, we can help reduce some of that body heat that's being produced. Now that's in, that's in complements to um, evaporation of sweat from the skin surface, which has some different um, physiological mechanisms. But all in all, as we're going through that process, you know, our bodies are competing for those two processes, right? To continue exercise and to then regulate body temperature. Well, over time, that puts a lot of strain on our cardiovascular system. And at some point, um, it gets to the point where our bodies can no longer continue exercising um, because the, the cardiovascular system um, can't keep up. So that's a, a very long explanation of what heat exhaustion is. You know, some risk factors, one of the primary risk factors is, is 
is dehydration because um, that exacerbates the, the thermoregulatory strain within our body as well as the cardiovascular strain within our body. But, you know, from a treatment perspective, getting those individuals out of that heat stress, so getting, getting them out of the sun into the shade, um, re- you know, helping them replace um, fluids, considering some body cooling options, you know, may be helpful to help them recover. Um, typically, that recovery is is relatively quick in a sense of looking at, you know, within the day, the 24 hour period, most people recover as long as they, you know, address the, the factors that may have been responsible. So in, in the case of dehydration, replacing those body water, uh, the body water losses, et cetera. Now, heat stroke, for example, that's the, our last condition that we will chat about real quickly. That, that's a medical emergency. And, and if that's not properly cared for quickly and, and efficiently, that could lead to some catastrophic outcomes and everything. And with heat stroke, we have two different types of heat stroke. We have classic heat stroke, which classic heat stroke um, is really more related to incidents um, involving infants or the elderly. So, you know, every year, unfortunately, you see in the news how um, an infant uh, passed away because they were left in the car and their, and their, their caregiver, you know, left them in the car without it running. They went in real quick to do something. It's hot outside and, 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 and all that. Or in the case of like a heat wave and an elderly person is living at home by themselves, they don't have air conditioning and it gets really hot in their house. So classic heat stroke is really just the, um, really referring to the, the, the failure of the thermoregulatory system. So the thermoregulatory system is, is unable to um, adapt to those that you know, that heat load, and the reason that it typically affects the elderly and, and infants is because in, in infants, the thermoregulatory system isn't you know well developed at that stage of life. Um, you know they're 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 not efficient sweaters, um, and there's other factors that just um, aren't al- allowing them to to thermoregulate. And in elderly populations, those thermoregulatory mechanisms that we have, um, those degrade over time as we age, um, and they lose some of that ability. So that's typically where we see see that. Now, exertional heat stroke is um, exertion based. Like I said, it's it's you know someone exerting themselves physically to to get to a, a very hyperthermic state. Um, and we typically see that in, in athletic settings. We'll see that in the military setting. We'll see that in occupational settings, um, you know, quite a bit in, in different contexts. Um, but um, it's kind of the same, the same kind of the pathophysiology is, is, is similar with the breakdown um, within the body. Um, but like I said, in this case, you're physically exerting yourself to increase body temperature to a very high level that your body is unable to um, dissipate effectively, and it, it leads to um, other um, physiological responses within the body that can break down proteins and, and tissues and, and cells um, that can lead to um, bad outcomes. So, yeah, no, thank you. That was a fantastic explanation. And I do remember that from my, my graduate courses in this, that really what you're dealing with is your your blood is doing double duty. It's both trying to fuel the, the the working muscles and trying to dissipate heat and then on top of that if you're doing if you're sweating a lot uh, you have that potential for your blood volume to go down which means it's an even greater strain you add all that together and uh, th- this is when you can start encountering these issues so with those definitions uh, I have to ask what do you think happened with my friend was it just heat exhaustion or do you think he actually suffered heat stroke um, that's a great question. And, and, um, 
you know, without having a an assessment of um, his internal body temperature, it's really difficult to say. So if we look at some signs and symptoms, and we'll start with exertional heat stroke, for example. Exertional heat stroke is really diagnosed with two specific kind of criteria. You have extreme hyperthermia, um, and that level of hyperthermia is usually above 40 or 40.5 degrees centigrade. So if you've transferred that to Fahrenheit, um, usually that internal body temperature is, is 104 and above. Now, depending on the literature you read, some people say th the threshold is 40 degrees Celsius or 104 degrees Fahrenheit. Other literature suggests that that threshold should be 40.5 or 105 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, and there's real no, there's really no empirical evidence to suggest which one is 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 correct. I myself, as as a clinician and as someone who uh, discusses this topic um, with people, I always err on the side of caution, and I use the lower threshold because I'd much rather be more conservative um, and making sure that the the proper treatment and care is done after that um, assessment of body temperature um, than anything. But you know, looking at an internal body temperature of 104 to 105 degrees Fahrenheit but also with altered mental status. Now, altered mental status can take a number of forms, which I think it adds to com the complexity of the condition, where altered mental status could mean that someone may be confused or they may be irritable or they may be exhibiting aggressive behavior um, or they may be unconscious. Um, you know, so there's, there's a whole host of different ways that someone can present as altered mental status. Um, going back to my point before, like, you know, if you're, if you know, um, you know, in this case with your friend, you, you know, your friend, you know, that your friend's personality. And, um, you know, if you start to observe that there, there's some changes to that, you know, that, that could be some telltale signs. Now, in my experience with the exertional heat stroke patients that I've had the opportunity to, to treat, most of those have been in road race settings. Um, you know, one of the ones I, I typically try to go and volunteer for is the Falmouth road race in, in Cape Cod every year. And, you know, we'll see 15 to 20 heat stroke patients um, each year during that race because of the distance and the temperatures and, 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 and whatnot. But with 12,000 runners, um, it makes it hard to know everyone. You know, there we take a much more conservative approach because we, you know, we, we don't know if someone is exhibiting altered mental status or not. So if we suspect it, then we'll, 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 we'll treat them. But, you know, those are the two ruling considerations for exertional heat stroke. Now with heat exhaustion, typically their internal body temperature is below that 40 degrees Celsius threshold or, or below 104 degrees Fahrenheit, which is, is good because that's a good delineating and, and uh, factor to differentiate those two conditions. And typically with heat exhaustion, people may experience some altered mental status, but that may be more, more mild. And again, that's going to be more individualized and it could be, it could present differently. So, you know, I guess to answer your question, you know, without having an assessment of their internal body temperature, um, it's really hard to say if it was heat exhaustion or exertional heat stroke. Uh, because of some overlap, particularly with the altered mental status part of things. And, and based on the story, you know, it did appear that, you know, there were some signs and symptoms of altered mental status along the way. Um, but, you know, having, having the need for that other um, objective measure um, is needed to really come to a, a, an accurate diagnosis. 
In North America, the road racing season is winding down, and cyclists are starting to think about their coaching and training for next year. Now is a perfect time for a late season inside test from Fast Talk Laboratories. You can think of it as your final exam on your training approach for the year. Did your training go well this year? Did you set a new high bar to beat next year? Our inside advanced test can tell you. It's an objective view of your fitness and your energy systems after riding all season. Get your inside results from Fast Talk Labs today and you'll have a new fitness level to beat as your goal for next season. See more at fasttalklabs.com slash solutions. So I want to switch gears here a little bit and ask a question because I do know from the the research there seems to be a regulator, particularly in in uh, experienced athletes, where as I'm sure you know they've done these studies to see the impact of heat and there's just a fairly consistent temperature where athletes will shut down they'll 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 slow down or ease up. Um, so sorry, uh, fairly consistent core temperature where athletes will, will ease up. So there does seem to be some sort of regulator in our bodies where the, the body says core temperature has gotten too high, you need to back down. What causes athletes to go beyond that point? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and to your point, yeah, there, you know, the, the brain regulates temperature um, we are pretty tightly um, and it, it maintains our product temperature within a, a specific range, you know, particularly when, you know, when we're at rest, but also when we're exercising, the body um, responds accordingly to make sure that you know, we're promoting uh, the, the proper means to help dissipate that body heat um, and everything. And, you know, with the, the kind of the regulator, as you were discussing, there's kind of two kind of frames of thought, if you will, as far as what uh, causes that, um, causes someone to stop exercising when they get to a certain body temperature. There's a, a anticipatory um, kind of um, frame of thought where, you know, as someone's exercising, you know, they'll, they'll anticipate or the body anticipates where their temperature could be um, exercising at that um, at that, you know, intensity and as an anticipatory mechanism, the body will then regulate intensity to, to, you know, help, um, you know, attenuate that rise of body temperature. And the other would be more kind of reactive where as the body temperature gets, you know, hotter and hotter, um, you know, the intensity will, um, will decline to, to regulate and to prevent that continued rise or continued rate of rise in body temperature. Um, the rate of rise in body temperature is um, most associated with exercise intensity. So the higher the exercise intensity, the more energy our bodies need, so the more body heat that's being produced. So it's, it's a, a, um, a factor of, of exercise intensity. So the body will, will um, you know, adjust accordingly. But to answer your question, how some athletes can can override that, um, that's that's a, it's a great question. Um, you know, I, I don't know if there's a real good answer within the literature how you know some athletes are able to exercise above those thresholds. Um, there was a a recent study um, that was published, I want to say last year, um, by Sebastian Racine and and some others um, that looked at 
body temperature um, responses during the world championships in uh, Qatar in 2019. And they found that some of these athletes, um, you know, were able to have internal body temperatures, um, you know, well above 40 degrees centigrade. Um, and they were still able to exercise and, and, you know, they, they um, were able to finish and, and be fine. Um, and, and some athletes are able to do that. I think, you know, with, with training, especially at the elite level, um, their bodies adapt to that stress um, and they're able to, to respond accordingly. So there may be some elite athletes that are able to exercise and have their body temperature exceed that 40 or that 40.5 threshold. Um, and they're able to regulate effectively, um, just based on how well their body is adapted to that training and that, in that training stress, um, and that heat stress that they um, will train in, um, to help promote some of those adaptations. Um, so, you know, there, there are some, you know, I, I, I can't say, you know, what causes that um, in, in an extent, um, but to go back to the question there, you know, I think there are some situations where people can override those initial mechanisms um, to, you know, slow down or just stop, you know, the, the mind is a very powerful regulator. And I think some people are able to kind of fight through that, that initial response of the body telling it to slow down and they're able to, to continue exercising. And in, in some situations, they will succumb to exertional heat stroke for, for doing that. But again, I'm, I'm not real sure, you know, if there's anything in the, in the literature that really fully explains that ability to do so, but it, it can, it can, it can occur. Well, Dr. Adams, in your experience, is this a function of people not speaking up because they don't have insight or they're embarrassed and they don't see, they don't ask for help because they don't want to ask for help. They're embarrassed or ashamed. That's a, that's a good question. And, and I don't have a, a really good answer um, for that particular question, but I could, I could, I can expand on it a little bit. So, you know, for looking at risk factors for, Heatlessness or exertional heat stroke. You know, we have you know, risk factors that are intrinsic. So, intrinsic in this case, meaning those risk factors are internal to our bodies. And we have extrinsic risk factors. So, risk factors that are external to our bodies. So, intrinsic risk factors, those could be, those could be factors such as lower hydration or dehydration. It could be low physical fitness. It could be a lack of heat, acclimatization. And acclimatization is really just a fancy term. That means that um, the body is undergoing a series of physiological adaptations over the course of days when there's repeated exposures to environmental heat um, during exercise. Um, and, and really, acclimatization um, is really a process in which one improves their thermal tolerance to exercise in, in those environmental conditions. So someone who's not acclimatized, um, that's an increased risk factor for, for exertional heat stroke, um, you know, recent illness, sleep deprivation, um, et cetera. So there's a number of internal factors that can be modified and, and, and addressed, um, but there's also external factors that come into play as well. So external factors that could be simply the environmental conditions. So going back to the story, you know, a heat wave coming into to Moab, and even though Moab is hot, you know, if there's a heat wave coming in and it's hotter out, well, that's just an increased environmental load um, that is placed on the body that prevents the body from dissipating heat as, as effectively as it would be if it was cooler out. 
some other external um, risk factors are, you know, having to wear protective equipment. So think back, you know, think of like the, the football player or the goalie in, in women's field hockey, for example, that are covered from, from head to toe with, with protective equipment as part of their sport. It makes it harder to dissipate body heat because you're, you're um, encapsulating some of the body um, to be able, and you're, you're preventing it um, from being able to evaporate sweat from the skin surface in those areas that the, the equipment's covering. Um, some other external factors are, um, you know, it could be um, peer pressure. So in an, in an athletic setting, think of like the peer pressure um, from coaches or other athletes. So someone may not want to stop or take a break or slow down because they have that external pressure placed on them to continue no matter what. And going back to our intrinsic risk factors, some people have, you know, a, a warrior type mentality where they're going to push themselves um, and keep pushing themselves to, to no matter what, because that's just their, their uh, mentality and, and how they approach situations. So, you know, those are some factors that come into play. So, you know, maybe, maybe in this case, maybe there, there were some factors that were related to the continued drive to keep going. Uh, and everything. But again, not knowing that exactly with the, the individual, it's, it's hard to say, but, you know, that's how, you know, that's how these risk factors kind of come into play and they all interrelate and, and everything and increase the risk profile. So I did find one relatively interesting study uh, from 2020 that uh, addressed this. So it's called Profiling Collapsing Half Marathon Runners, Emerging Risk Factors, Results from the, the Gothenburg Half Marathon. So this was, they interviewed uh, 13 athletes who had uh, collapsed during the half marathon to figure out what was going on and, and what were some of the motivators. And really asking them, you know, why you were probably feeling the cues, why did you ignore them? And the three things that were cited the most by these athletes were personal performance, uh, other athletes are trying to keep up with other runners and the size of the audience. So if there were a lot of people on the side of the road, they, they uh, felt that pressure to, to keep going and, and not quit. Yeah. And that, that's a good example of, you know, the, at least the, the peer pressure, the, that extrinsic factor, and then the internal motivation to keep going. So that, that's a really good example of, of how those factors can come into play and potentially increase someone's risk of heat-related illness. So, you know, that, that's a, the, a good example right there to use. All right. Well, that's been a wealth of information on the, the definitions, the explanations, the, the risk factors, all of that. Let's turn it to the more practical side here. Um, you're out on a trail or you're with a friend out on a trail or you're in a race um, take us inside that setting, if you would, Dr. Adams. What are the indicators you should look for in yourself or in somebody else to know that they're in trouble? Oh, yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, I'll, I'll start with the, the second part, you know, with what to look for in, in someone else, because I think that's a little easier to, to observe than to, uh, uh, to look more internally um, within ourselves. I think sometimes it, it's hard, particularly with you know, everyone being uh, different and, and personalities different, et cetera. But, you know, I think, you know, if you're out with some friends and you're on the trail or you're, you're running a race with some people or, you know, or, or whatnot, 
you know, I, I think some things that you can, you know, be on the lookout for are just some subtle changes. Um, you know, this could be subtle changes to their, their personality. It could be subtle changes to uh, their ability to keep moving. It could be some subtle changes in, in maybe their, their appearance. You know, they, you could be running a road race and then all of a sudden you start to see someone that's, you know, having, uh, they, they start running with an intelligent gait and, you know, like, oh, they may be hurt. They must have, they may have a musculoskeletal injury upon asking them. They may say, oh, no, no, I'm fine. But, you know, some of those subtle changes could be indicators that, hey, something may be going on. Or, you know, you may be talking to someone and say you're running a marathon. I know um, I've run a number of marathons and half marathons. And I love it because you get to meet people and, uh, you know, you meet people, you know, who are running your pace and, and talk to them and you can use them as, as motivation throughout. But, you know, some other factors that can come into play is, you know, if, if that situation arises and you're running with someone or, or you're, you're biking with someone and, and you're having some good conversations then all of a sudden some of the conversations or the responses to certain things or questions or whatever start to become a little, I guess, odd, you know, or not um, within the context of the conversation. Um, you know, th- those could be some, some, um, some things to at least pay attention to or um, some potential indicators that something may not be, be, be going um, well. You know, internally, I think it's a little harder to be honest with you. I think some people may be more in tune with their bodies than others. And I think in those situations, they, they may know that, Hey, I'm just, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm just going downhill, um, you know, for, for whatever reason where, you know, my heart rates through the roof or, you know, I'm just, you know, I have like tunnel vision or, or whatnot, you know, those are just some examples that, you know, um, one may, may, you know, experience or, or something else. Um, so I think it's harder to think more internally because, you know, it, I, I think it's harder for people to, to put their body and their responses into context sometimes, especially if they don't know their body well or how their body responds to certain stimuli or stressors. So, um, yeah, I think it's a little bit harder from that, that perspective versus observing someone else that may be struggling. Given that, um, perhaps it's uh, also challenging to talk about what to do, when to stay in the race, when to pull out. Are there things you can do to come back from where you've gone to, so to speak, in terms of that that level of risk? Uh, What what pieces of advice would you have here, both for the athlete or the, the friend that you might be training or racing with? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of things. And I think, you know, going back to looking internally within ourselves, if we're out exercising, you know, I think, you know, listening to your body, right? And especially this becomes may become problematic for someone who may be the more of the, the warrior mentality type where, hey, my body is telling me to slow down or telling me to take a break or telling me to uh, to, to do something. I should probably listen to it, right? Um, versus trying to push through that that uh, barrier that has come up within our body. The other things that, um, you know, people can do is, is be proactive, right? So even, you know, within yourself or if you're with a group or, or, or whatever, be proactive um, where, Hey, it's going to be hot out today. Let's, let's go out and, and, you know, we'll, we'll go do a trail run, for example, or we'll go out and do a mountain bike, um, um, you know, go for uh, and go out and mountain bike, but maybe plan strategically plan like, Hey, you know, we're going to go in for 20 minutes 
And then, hey, we're going to stop and take a, a you know, five, 10 minute break. Um, we're going to drink some water or, you know, thinking proactively and plan and, and, and being strategic with some of these things that can be effective, you know, so having modified work to rest ratios as it gets hotter outside. So taking some breaks, um, drinking some water, finding some shade, um, you know, changing when, you know, you go out to do your, your run, for example, maybe, maybe go out early in the morning before the sun comes out or, you know, later in the evening when it gets a little cooler out. Um, those are some things that um, some strategies that can be pretty effective um, in, in those scenarios. Now, again, those are training scenarios. It's not, you know, um, when it comes to like competition and races, it becomes a little bit difficult. Um, I think, you know, from a race and competition perspective, I think externally, I think um, some proactive changes can take place, you know, with rescheduling things. So for example, you know, think back to the, the Olympics the past couple of weeks, which has been, uh, you know, amazing to watch and the gold medal match for women's soccer between uh, Canada and Sweden. It was supposed to occur at like 11 a.m. or 12 um, p.m. in Japan, um, but seeing how hot it was supposed to be during the start of that match, they rescheduled it to the nighttime. You know, the next day, um, so it was you know no sun. It was it was uh, dark out um, to get rid of that some that heat load from the sun. Um, similar with um, the the marathon events, you know, they're moving, moving the, the, the marathon events up an hour um, for the, the women's marathon to start a little bit earlier in the day to get done earlier before it got too hot. So those are some proactive changes that can happen organizationally that can help mitigate some risk um, within the athletes participating in some events. You know, again, going back to listening to your body, right? You know, if, if you're really struggling and you're, you know, running a half marathon, for example, hey, maybe, maybe that's, you know, that day is just not your day. Uh, maybe it's not your day to to PR. So listen to your body, you know, take some time, um, you know, consider like a, a, a run or jog walk, um, you know, scenario or, or something to kind of, you know, help mitigate some of that, uh, those changes of body temperature may be, may be helpful and to make sure that, you know, you're, you're hydrating um, appropriately and, and, and whatnot. Bill Abraham's race professionally in Europe and Trinidad and Tobago, which is down on the equator, so he knows heat. Let's hear his thoughts on how to protect yourself from those hot days on the bike. Well, heat exhaustion is um, is not just uh, a now for now uh, thing. You have to like prehydrate, pre-prepare, and make sure that your body stays cool. Um, your body is like a radiator in a car. That you you know you have to you have to be able to produce water to your head behind your neck. This is the reason that a lot of riders you may see if you go to a race and it's really hot out, they would put like a stockings of ice right up to the top part of, behind their neck, uh, upper back, because um, I think that's one of the most um, beneficial points on your body that, that that helps your 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 system acknowledge. Um, the cooling of the body and on your head and stuff like that. So, so these are places that if you feel like your body is starting to like burn up from the inside, you definitely want to wet your head behind your body, um, behind your neck and, and keep that body cool and make sure you hydrate from at least 48 hours in advance um, because you can't wait day of uh, to start hydrating um, so, you know, just make sure that you just drink in that water 48 hours in advance. And you do, with the wetting and all that, you should be 
somewhat okay. So let's talk quickly about the that worst case scenario where I found myself. So you're out in the middle of nowhere, you're with a friend or you're by yourself. You or your friend didn't listen to all the signs and you're now so either they or you yourself are into heat exhaustion heading towards heat stroke. What do you do at that point? Activate EMS. And obviously in, in this situation it was it was very complicated because of cell service and and all that. So it makes it really, really hard, right? But thinking of strategies going forward, um, you know, if you're with someone and they're deteriorating and you think it may be a potential um, case of exertional heat stroke or or whatnot, one, getting them out of the sun if possible, getting them to to you know get some fluids if they can consume fluids, or if there's fluids available, you using some of that to dump over the body to help kind of cool the body down, especially when you're in remote settings, um, activating EMS to get, you know, advanced medical care on site as quickly as possible um, is going to be helpful to, to reduce the risk of, of potential long-term morbidity if the if it is in fact you know exertional heat stroke so i think those are some things to 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 think about and again it's really setting specific in in this scenario here you know mountain biking out in, in moab you know it it becomes very complicated because you know how re- remote that is the lack of tree cover you know you're only able to you know carry so much you know water and fluids with you, you know, thinking of, of ways to get around that and coming up with an action plan as far as, hey, if, if things kind of go sideways, what's my action plan? How am I going to contact, you know, EMS? Um, you know, how am I going to do this? You know, you know, do I have the supplies needed to, to, to do this or to provide fluids or cooling, et cetera. So there's a number of things that can, can be done, but I think, you know, having an action plan going into those things can be very helpful. So the, the two things I would say I learned in this experience is one, uh, know how to find on your phone, your longitude and latitude. I was very glad one of the people we were with was able to do that because we had to call in the helicopter, but if we were trying to describe, you know, this isn't like saying, well, we're at the corner of X road and Y road. This was, we're out in the middle of nowhere. And, and one of them was able to find the, the longitude and latitude and give that to the helicopter that helped immensely. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I would just recommend is, uh, don't sit there and go, well, let's see how this plays out before you call EMS. I think it's get on the phone, call them, get them there. You can deal with the insurance and the the ambulance bills later yeah and that's actually a good point you know i i i never thought of and to be honest like i i don't even i don't even know how to find the latitude and longitude on my on my phone so that might be something you know good for me to look uh look into especially you know where i am and and my joy for being outside you know and hiking in in, in the wilderness and, and and whatnot so you know that's that's a great point and you know i think i think thinking of those things and 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 you know having a plan in place um, is is really effective because you know having an effective plan in place just expedites the timing to proper medical care if there's a situation that does arise that needs advanced medical care. So, yep, and that's you know that's actually what scared me after the incident. That that is why I'm saying don't wait too long. You know, just uh, you know pull the trigger and and, and call was that uh, the, the, the ground rescuer who said what he sees with people that suffer heat stroke up there is they go into comas and they don't come out. 
So you don't want to wait till your friend's in a coma. Then it's way too late. Yeah, I mean, and, and with heat-related illness and exertional heat stroke, you know, it, it all comes down to timing. You know, if someone's going to succumb to exertional heat stroke, um, it, it's how quickly you can cool the body down. And, and, and evidence and, and research is repeatedly shown that if we can reduce someone's body temperature as quickly as possible, and, and oftentimes we, oft, we, we use the, the golden half hour. So if we can reduce body temperature quickly within 30 minutes, um, we typically have very positive outcomes um, from, from the patient. So, you know, in that case is, you know, how quickly can we, can we have an, an intervention, a treatment intervention in this case? And for, for anyone out there that's, that's listening and has an iPhone, the easiest way to find your GPS coordinates, um, there is a compass app on your phone preloaded. If you open that up, it'll tell you your bearing, of course, since it is a compass your location, your elevation, and your latitude and longitude. So it's actually pretty easy, assuming you have service of some kind, I think. I don't, don't know. Maybe it works without service because it's, it's uh, running off GPS and not cell service. So good thing to know for sure, depending on the model of phone you have, uh, etc. Before we give our take-homes, let's hear my friend Adam's final thoughts on his experience in Moab. I think I'd be real careful about back-to-back days. I think I've got a much better feel still for my my limits if it's like a one-day sort of like, you know, I'm relatively fresh and I'm planning, you know, doing like a two-hour ride in the heat because I've done plenty of those, you know, it gets regularly up 9,500 degrees around Salt Lake City in the summer and I can usually gauge I'm good for an hour in this temperature or I'm good for an hour and a half. But that's when I'm just riding, you know, the weekends after kind of sitting around in air-conditioned office all week. Just doing back-to-back days, I don't, I don't know if I can predict how recovered or, or not I am after a, a couple of days of stress like that. Any, it's now a couple months later, any lasting effects or do you feel like you, you fully recovered from this? Oh, I feel like I fully recovered. And I think a lot of that's uh, thanks to you and to those guys on the trail and Nate for getting, you know, the, all the help out there quickly. When I was walking out of the hospital, you know, I'd been, I was, I think I was there for about three, four hours. Yep. And in that time they put about four and a half liters or five liters of IV fluid in me, a gram of potassium, a gram of magnesium. I turned it around to where I could walk and felt you know, I still felt like crap, but I could function. And when I was walking out, the one of the nurses was like, yeah, usually we don't have people get airlifted here and then walk out that afternoon. So my case is fairly rare. I did get follow-up blood work about a week later, like they recommended, and all my electrolytes were back in normal ranges. All my kidney function looked normal again. The one thing I did notice is a little lingering dizziness for especially the first week afterwards and for about two weeks afterwards when I would stand up quickly or something, I would feel a little bit dizzy. Um, and I think that was due to some, some effect of that heat exhaustion. But after about two weeks, I'd say I felt completely normal. Probably a good thing my, my bike was stuck in the shop for six weeks waiting for a new hub because it's impossible to get parts right now. Right. So I was forced to take time off the bike. Um, we also had really bad smoke for a while in Salt Lake anyway. So 
I start, I rode my, uh, my road bike on the trainer inside a, a few times and then got back into weightlifting, um, and felt, felt pretty normal. And I think I'm hundred percent back to where I was at this point. Well, Dr. Adams, thank you again for, for all this great information. I want to leave us with, uh, you know, our 60 second take homes like we normally do. I'll, I'll start with you. You're probably going to take all the good answers because you know everything about the subject and we don't. <laughs> but um, yeah, Dr. Adams, give us the most important take-homes from this discussion today. Yeah, no, um, there's a lot of good take-homes from this discussion. So um, a little daunting for me to kind of wrap up uh, and, and kind of you know hit on the, the, the main things. But I think one of the things is probably in line with the last thing we were just discussing is, is you know, having an action plan. Um, so if you're, if you're out, you know, training or if you're out for a, a hike or out mountain biking, um, in, in Moab, for example, based on the story that, uh, we were kind of going back and forth on having, having a plan as far as what to do in the event of a potential medical emergency is going to be, um, essential for expediting, um, access to medical care, uh, medical care, um, to, to treat whatever potential medical emergency that may, may arise, um, so I, I mean, I think for me, that's probably the, the number one take home is, is be prepared and uh, to do the, the front end work in order to, to, to be prepared. Trevor, I'm sure you have uh, a lot of thoughts here as well. Well, I think that was the big take home to be prepared. Uh, you don't want to be where I was, where you have a, a friend resting on your shoulders and you're, you're fearing that your friend is dying and there's absolutely nothing you can do. That's just not a place you want to be. You also don't want to be in that place where you're going through this yourself and, and there's no plan. So I think the thing I would add is it is surprising how quickly this can happen. And so watch for those signs, particularly if you're out in the heat, if you're in a situation like this. Watch yourself. Watch your friends. And if you start seeing the signs, take action earlier. Don't, don't get behind it because you get behind it, it goes really bad places. Chris, any thoughts? I, I think the only thing I can really add here, uh, given the fact that uh, luckily I've never experienced either of these things, but you know, I, I just would encourage people not to cave, I guess you could say, to, to that peer pressure, to speak up if you think something's going wrong. Um, we do talk a lot on this program about the, the seriousness with which uh, a lot of people take their sports and their training and their racing. And that's great, but if you take it so far that you're not willing to uh, ta- uh, to, to take the, a moment to assess whether you're dealing with something as serious as this, um, then maybe you're pushing too hard and too far. So don't be embarrassed. Don't be ashamed. Speak up if you need help, um, and I think that could buy you um, time or just completely eliminate the risk that one of these conditions is going to develop so dr adams again thank you thank you for being on fast talk it's been a pleasure thank you for your wisdom here today no thank you again for having me and uh, it was it was a great discussion so i'm i'm very grateful to to have been invited to to join the the show today we really enjoyed having you thank you that was another episode of fast talk subscribe to fast talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcast and be sure to leave us a rating and a review The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. 
Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com and discuss each and every episode. Become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com join and become a part of our education and coaching community. For Dr. William Adams, Adam Weissman, Emil Abraham, and Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.